Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm Stephen, your host for today, and I'm speaking with Professor Kimberly Huang, an Associate Professor of Sociology in the College and the Director of Global Studies at the University of Chicago. Professor Huang has received numerous awards, including the 2018 Llewellyn John and Harriet Manchester Quantrell Teaching Award at the University of Chicago, and the 2020 Louis A. Coser Award from the American Sociological Association Section on Sociological Theory. She's the author of Dealing in Desire, Asian Ascendancy, Western Decline, and the Hidden Currencies of Global Sex Work, which won seven distinguished book awards from multiple sections of the American Sociological Association, the National Women's Studies Association, the Society for the Study of Social Problems, and the Association for Asian Studies. As we will discuss, she has a new book coming out as well, entitled Spiderweb Capitalism, How Global Elites Exploit Frontier Markets, which is forthcoming from the Princeton University Press. She's here today to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Huang. A lot of stuff to get to here, but uh, we want to start off with the basics. So um, yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about your field and you know your position and, and what you do at UChicago? Sure. So I am a sociologist and I'm an associate professor of sociology. I was in sociology, specialized in economic sociology, global sociology, sociology of law, gender, qualitative research methods. So I, I primarily do ethnographic field work and interviews. And I'm also the director of the Global Studies Program at UChicago. Okay, quite a lot there. And uh, we we will be getting into it. But we actually want to go uh, way, way back now and uh, mm-hmm. and talk about you um, really like when, when you were a kid. I mean, what did you want to be or what did you think that you might be? And uh, were, were there any signs that you were going to end up in sociology or no? Oh, no, absolutely not. Uh, I came from a Vietnamese refugee family. My parent, neither of my parents went to school. And I mean, my earliest kind of memories of those times of thinking about what I wanted to do when I grew up was, were super vague. I mean, I just, I had no clue. And I, I think at that time, I dreamt of going to college. And that's as far as I could have seen I didn't really have, I, my parents were small business owners. They ran first a laundromat and then a pool hall that catered to uh, Vietnamese immigrant men in the largest Vietnamese enclave in Orange County called Little Saigon in California. And then after that, they ran a motel for many years. And so I, I lived a lot with, you know, the background of parents who were working 18 hours a day running a small business and sort of the ups and downs of that small business life. And I knew that I didn't want to feel the kind of precarity that came with and risks that came with running a business where there's some good months and some really bad months and where when business is slow, things can feel very stressful. And so I think at the time I kind of craved for stability and predictability. Mm -hmm. But I I think looking forward, the goal was to just sort of get to college. Yeah. So I think you've already started to, but uh, could you just sort of describe what you were like in high school, what your interests were? And yeah, I mean, what your objectives were. Although, you know, it may have been as simple as I've got to get to college. Yeah. I, you know, I think people would probably be surprised to hear this or maybe they wouldn't, wouldn't be. Um, It's not something I talk a lot about at the University of Chicago in part because we don't really go that far back into our path. But when I was in high school, I was not a high achieving student by any means. I was not in any of the honors or AP tracks. In fact, I was the Ozar four siblings. So I had three younger siblings. 
And because my parents were uh, working so much and there was such a large age gap between myself and my youngest sibling, the two younger ones were 13 and 15 years apart. I was the primary caretaker for them. And my mom got really sick. And so on the weekends and sometimes in the evenings, I actually helped to run the business. And so my life was not, I would say, academically oriented very at all. I mean, I did well in my courses and they were relatively easy, but because I wasn't tracked in an AP or honors track, when I went to the administrators to ask to, to get into Carter courses, I was actually turned away and turned down and told that those kinds of courses weren't for me. And so as the elder, eldest daughter, I didn't really have a way of pushing back and saying, I mean, I said I was so bored. These, this is so easy. Um, I would like to be challenged more, but um, it was met with a lot of resistance. And so I took that experience and sort of guided my younger siblings to kind of press them to move on to an honors and AP track much younger. And so they all sort of graduated with honors and AP courses at the time. But that was, that just was not me. Yeah, it was, I, I sort of went to school, hung out with friends, but most of my focus at that time was really kind of caring for my younger siblings and, and really a worry for my mom and her health and helping to run the business and keeping it afloat. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of responsibilities for someone that young. Yeah, looking back and now saying the kind of privilege that many of my students come from, I realize now that it was a lot. <laughs> so can you just sort of chart for us what your, your course was from college through to where you are now? I mean, you know, just like which, which institutions uh, did you attend and uh, what was that timeline like? So I went to UC Santa Barbara for undergraduate, uh, for my undergraduate degree, and I didn't, I actually didn't apply to too many schools and maybe applied to three or four schools that were um, within driving distance from where my parents lived. And I didn't apply widely just because I, I didn't know how. I didn't really, I didn't have much guidance at the time. And so UC Santa Barbara was the best school that I got into that I had applied to. And I, I think I applied primarily to Cal State. And I just remember visiting and thinking, oh, this is far enough to kind of go away, but close enough to go home and manage a crisis if I needed to. So I went and I actually found it to be, I graduated at the top, I mean, the very top of my class. So when I graduated from UC Santa Barbara, I graduated with the dual honors, which was I, I was pretty rare at the time. I don't, I don't know if anyone else has graduated with that, but wow. um, sort of at the top of the social sciences and for both research and GPA. So I, I did really well in college and part I will say that it started off kind of rough where I didn't know that I was doing well. And so in my imagination, mm. I was performing at a C level when I was getting straight A's and it took a long time for it to register that I was doing just fine because every quarter when I would get straight A's, I would say, oh, I got lucky. I have to like study harder. And I was the type of student that would annoyingly email professors for their syllabi so that I could start reading two weeks ahead of the, of the <laughs> syllabus. So that if there was something I didn't understand, I could really take it up in office hours. And, I, you know, I, I when I think back about, I don't know how I did that, but I think it was because college seemed so easy for me compared to the responsibilities that I had at home mm -hmm. on kind of a more of a socio-emotional level. And it was just fun. Like I was learning so much and my world was opening up in so many ways that I just couldn't even imagine. And I had a lot of very supportive professors uh, when I went to office hours. And so that really changed my life because I was taking a 
course in Asian American studies, actually. And the course was on Asian American history. And it was the first time I'd ever encountered an Asian American studies course. And it helped to sort of put my parents, you know, history of migration into context. And part of the course, there was a section on religion. And I remember saying something to the professor casually like, oh, you know, there's no study of Vietnamese Catholics. And there's a very big population of Vietnamese Catholics who migrated after the war. And he said, oh, you should just do a project on it. And so I did it largely for fun uh, starting my sophomore year. And that turned into a senior honors thesis, which I didn't know what that was at the time and had no idea that I started working on it so early. I just did it out of intellectual curiosity. And in working with that professor on that project, he had asked me, you know, what do you think you want to do after this? And I said, I don't know, go to law school. It seems like that's what a lot of my friends are doing and it (laughs) has stability and pays well. And he said, I think you'd be a terrible lawyer, but I think you would be a great academic. And he was like, (laughs) imagine that you can do this and get paid to do this. And what he, what he meant by that was like, He said, you know, um, if you go to law school, you're going to end up with all of this debt that's going to take you a long time to pay off. But if you go into a PhD program, you can get a full fellowship and essentially get paid to go to school. And at that time, I thought I was working two jobs as an undergraduate to pay for my living expenses while my parents were paying for my tuition because they had made just barely enough that I didn't qualify for financial aid. And so the idea that I could just go to school and not have two jobs felt like such an incredible luxury. And so I thought, okay, well, if someone's going to guide me to the process, like I'll apply. And if I don't get in, then I'll just, you know, think about the law school route later. And so I applied and got into some really great programs. And I remember when I received that fellowship letter, I, I thought I'd won the lottery. Like I couldn't imagine, I couldn't believe that I had, it was just, I felt like I just, it was this golden ticket. And so I actually started a PhD program at Stanford University in sociology. But when I arrived there, I was really overwhelmed by the level of privilege at a place like Stanford coming from, you know, being a first generation student and being the first in my family really to go to college. And I just, I had no idea the kind of like social hierarchy, social structure, wealth in that world. And it was extremely hard for me to navigate. And so I had sort of a, I struggled, like I had, you know, with mental health that year. And I remember seeing a team of doctors who couldn't understand why I was struggling so much. They were sort of resident students too. So that was a model. And I applied that year to Berkeley and got into UC Berkeley and decided to leave for less resources than Stanford, only because Berkeley, by virtue of it being a public school, admitted larger cohort sizes. And because of that, they, they had admitted more students with similar backgrounds as mine. And I felt like it, would, it was easier to navigate learning together rather than learning alone. And so I left Stanford. I got a master's degree at Stanford in one year and left and went to Berkeley. And when I showed up at Berkeley, I was just so determined to kind of hit the ground running. And so I completed my PhD at Berkeley in five years and did an ethnography of the sex industry in Vietnam as part of the dissertation project, which turned into my first book, Dealing in Desire. And, you know, at that time, my aspirations weren't also weren't, I mean, I, at the time I thought like my dream job would be to teach at a Cal State near um, university near my family in Southern California. 
my research just really took me in a direction that I could never have even fathomed. And so I ended up doing a postdoc for two years at Rice University and then teaching for two years at Boston College before getting recruited and moving to the University of Chicago. And yeah, I think that there are days when I think about that trajectory and think like there's, it's just so rare or I don't meet, or if I, I, I meet, maybe meet, but we don't talk about it on campus much. People who come from similar backgrounds as I do, who've kind of, it felt like a very steep learning curve all along the way. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. I mean, that's um, that's a really a well-told overview and, and you answered some of my follow-up questions. One of the purposes of this is to, uh, you know, get, pass along any advice that you might have. And I just, I wonder, do you think that there is advice that you have pertaining to your own experience, you know, moving from Stanford to Cal about, you know, finding a place where you're comfortable and, and where I like the phrase you used, I think you said, where you can learn together with your cohort. Like what, what, what would you tell, you know, students who might find themselves in a, a similar situation now? I mean, I I would say a few things. I think that the thing I wish I knew that I know now is that everybody everybody arrives, they just arrive on their own time. And so, you know, whether you come from more or less privilege, your learning journey is your own learning journey. And I think that some people take longer, some people to, you know, process things, some people take are faster. Some people are really good at theory, some people are really good with data crunching, but nobody's good at everything. And everybody has something to learn. And I think that it's just so important to to remember that your own journey is so unique and persistence is really key. And I think that failure is is not a bad thing. It teaches us a lot about ourselves. It teaches us a lot about where we might have missed the mark. And I think we kind of live in a world that loses sight of that sometimes. I have to remind myself of it even now, later in my career. And so I think it's just important to value risk taking and and appreciate the journey rather than just sort of the outcome of success, whatever that might be, because people experience it on their own time and in their own ways. You mentioned a moment where uh, someone said, well, I don't think you'd make a good lawyer, but uh, I'm curious, like, would you say there was a moment where you really decided on sociology or or was this, you know, was following that route more to something that evolved organically from the, the projects that interested you in undergrad? I think it it emerged organically in part because I was a communications and Asian American studies undergrad major. And I felt like communication theory was just too superficial. And sociology really got at deeper questions, theoretical questions around inequality and race and gender. And so I, you know, really appreciated the depth of theory in sociology that I thought communications lacked. And so that's why I transitioned to sociology. I want to talk a little bit about uh, what what you do now. I mean, first of all, could you just describe, uh, you know, what your sort of research interests are these days? And is there anything particularly exciting that, that you're working on at this moment? Yeah, so I'm really excited. I have a book. It's titled Spiderweb Capitalism, How Global Elites Exploit Frontier Markets. And it's coming out with Princeton Press in September, right around my birthday. So I'm really excited. And it's very much a University of Chicago project. It was sort of I moved to the University of Chicago to do this project because it was one of the few places that I felt appreciated projects that were large in scale, kind of risky and theoretically ambitious and um, and provided the resources to help kind of make that happen. And so the book looks at ultra high and high net worth individuals and the financial professionals that manage their money and looks at how they make investments in frontier and emerging markets. And the two markets that I look at are Vietnam and Myanmar. But it traces ownership of capital 
through offshore structures and vehicles in the Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands, Panama, Seychelles, that are then directed into holding companies or paper companies in Hong Kong and Singapore before that gets invested onshore in places like Vietnam and Myanmar. And for that project, I traveled all around the world and interviewed people as they were raising money and people as they were deploying capital and getting different perspectives from lawyers, bankers, auditors, accountants, company secretaries, all of the different people that played a role in um, shaping markets. And so as a sociologist and particularly as a qualitative person, I'm really interested in understanding how people make markets and how people shape markets and um, trying to think about capital flows through people. Um, and that's really what the book does. Congratulations. That's, that's very exciting. I also want to ask, uh, you know, you're the director of global studies at UChicago. What, uh, what does that role entail? Um, and, you know, on a sort of day-to-day basis, what, what does that mean for, um, for your work? Yeah, so it's um, primarily an undergraduate major and it's housed in the college. And so much of what the work looked like this year was overhauling and revamping the curriculum to really think about, you know, global studies, to, to think about global studies o- across four different thematic tracks. And I think the other thing is to really think about how to support undergraduate students interested in, you know, writing honors theses, interested in, you know, going into careers that, ha- you know, that are global. I mean, everything is global now, but, you know, careers in foreign services or in nonprofit or, you know, public health, you know, world. And so kind of really thinking about creating an environment where students can engage with the global and both through their classes, through study abroad, through internships abroad, and through thesis projects abroad. So looking, um, you know, at, at, all of your work, the the research aspects of it, the teaching aspects, and um, and the stuff that you just described. I, I do want to hear what your favorite parts are, but we've also been making sure to ask people what uh, some of their least favorite parts are. So, I mean, is there anything about this that you would sort of drop tomorrow if you could? Like, what, what are the annoying aspects of, of being a professor? To be honest with you, right now, I, first of all, I would say that, and I genuinely mean this when I say this, like, my husband, I think that the thing I love the most about being a professor are the students. And my husband was joking the other day because I ran into a group of some students who I had met when they were in their first or second year who'd taken a class with me and they were all taking pictures for graduation. And and there were four of them and they're all women. And I was like, oh my gosh, these are my students. And I just completely lit up. And then they were like, Professor Hong, come over here and take a picture with us. And I was not dressed you know, very well at all. But my husband was like, oh my gosh, you just lit up when you saw them and you look so happy being with them. And and I was just like, yeah, that's it. I really love the students. I, re- I think they're so bright. I think, they're, I think we're so privileged to teach some of the most talented students across the nation. They, they are deep thinkers. They're really hard workers. And uh, the time in the classroom with them is probably my favorite. The thing that I, I really don't like right now I mean, I would have to be honest, has nothing to do with teaching or the students. It's just like the world, the world crises Mm. that really affect teaching. I think that the last two years with the COVID-19 pandemic and just this kind of whiplash of crises, everything from, you know, the the end of the war in Afghanistan to things happening, uh, the, you know, conflict with Ukraine and Russia and Roe v. Wade. And, you know, you know, last night I went to bed to 
there's school shooting in Texas. And uh, I think that the sort of, you know, George Floyd and these two, I mean, geez, I could just, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing other things. I feel like, oh, capital riots. I mean, it's just been so many, like one thing after another, after another, that I think it's been really hard uh, and for students to focus and to engage and to be present and to think that, to feel like the the text that we teach matter in a way that when when literally it feels like the sky is falling. And I think that if there's one thing that I don't like, it's just sort of the rapid pace at which we've been confronted with or assaulted with different kinds of crises. And I just, I think that that's made, I think it just made my job administratively challenging, but also from a teaching perspective, really challenging. And on the whole, just I mean, I, I, to be honest, I don't know anybody who's not burned out right now. Students, faculty, everyone. I just don't know how we're going to come out of this or how we can come back to a place of feeling energized instead of feeling just an overall sense of fatigue moving from one crisis to the next without any real solutions or sort of light at the end of the tunnel in navigating each of these. And, and I just will say too, it, it, I think the students are extra sensitive. And, and I think what is hard is... Um, the kind of feeling of defeatedness of that, like there's nothing that they can do to, you know, fix any of this and that they're stuck. And I think that's really challenging. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, I think that resonates across, you know, across careers. I think that resonates uh, probably with everyone in some way at this moment. And I'm curious, like, yeah, how, how, how do you confront that, you know, walking into a classroom? And I know that you're, you know, a lot of the subjects that you are talking about with your students are, are probably you know, pretty related to what's in the news in in a lot of cases. Does that make it easier or does it just kind of make it even more difficult to focus? And like, how have you managed uh, to to teach through uh, everything that you just described? I mean, to be honest with you, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I definitely think that I put all of my energy into teaching this quarter. And I really feel like when I, I'm very focused when I'm in the classroom, I'm, I'm much more present. I don't know. I was always present, but I'm, I'm extra sensitive to where the students are. And I really think about like brain capacity and how much they can process right now. And given the, the mounting pressures as well. And, and so I really kind of, I've changed my metrics for what I think of success, which is that if they can talk about these in an intelligent way to their mm. family members, to other, in other classrooms, to me, that's kind of a measure of success rather than, you know, how deep they can go into the material is just sort of the way that I used to, how much they, how much they can regurgitate, you know, high theory. Now I just think how can, how much can they apply this, put it in conversation with, think about it in relation to other materials, other events, and use that to bring different kinds of insights to these kinds of crises that we're confronted with. We talked a little bit about um, advice that you might have for for certain students earlier, but uh, you know, I mean, yeah, you're you're about to, to publish your second book. Um, there's a, a list of awards here that I'm looking at in your bio. Um, I'm I'm sure that you you have you know some type of you know broadly applicable wisdom. What would you tell students, you know, high school or college students who would hope to follow in your footsteps? So, what what is some advice that you would give to them? I think that it would be to find your passion and learn how to trust your gut and trust your instincts and intuition. I think that when you do something that you love, you're going to be really good at it and bring and attract the right people into your life and find the right career path. I think that, I think students often worry about 
you know, what will, what will this major lead me to and how will this feed into a career? And I really honestly think that a U Chicago degree by itself speaks for itself. And, and it's just so, so important to kind of find your passions and find your voice because I know so many people who, who are at my life stage now who didn't and did a lot to please their parents or did a lot to please their friends or their other, other people and are really struggling now to find that. And I feel very, very, very lucky that I was able to, you know, soul search the way that I did in college, but also throughout my entire career. I mean, academia, I think, is, is not a young person's game. It's a, it's a game mm. where cumulative knowledge matters a lot. And I really feel like um, the sky is the limit in terms of how I can learn and grow and forever be a student in some ways. And I just think it's so important to kind of like learn how to listen to your intuition and trust your gut and, and find a passion and hone in on it because it just makes life so much more adventurous and fun and, you know, vibrant. And I think that in a world where the, the sky feels like it's falling, it, it, you know, honing on that passion is so important to thinking about how you can be part of the solution to solving some of these problems. And, um, and yeah, I have an 18 month old daughter and I really hope that, and I have a lot of faith that this generation of students are going to do that and, and help solve these problems so that she will inherit a much better and more peaceful world. Our thanks to Professor Huang for her time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the others. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. See you around. 